This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 327, November the 12th, 1994. In this hour, Mark Rushdoony, Douglas Murray, and Andrew Sandlin and I will be discussing trends in the church today. We are at a critical point in the history of the world. The age of humanistic statism is in process of decay all around us so that we face a crumbling world as surely as did the latter-day Romans. This is a challenging time for the Christian and the church. And it is important for us to be aware of not only the responsibilities of the church, but the condition of the church, the directions it's taking. I'm going to ask Andrew Sandlin to lead off with a statement giving us generals and particulars of the question perhaps the leading trend uh, that has so injured the church over the last hundred years is, I believe, the loss of objective standards. Earlier, the church held to absolute biblical authority. Uh, This was true, of course, both in the East and in the West. Uh, Protestantism highlighted the idea of the absolute authority of the Word of God as opposed to the authority of tradition. But even Romanism held to the inspiration and infallibility of the Word of God. Uh, Certainly that uh, profession was eviscerated in the Eastern Church, but nonetheless, and in her confessional standards, in both East and West, the Church held to the Scriptures as a sacred document. On the whole, the wider society did also. Of course, uh, there were even before the advent of what we know as Protestant liberalism. There were always those, historically, who would question the authority of Scripture, but they were in a great minority, and they were clearly considered heretical. But with the rise of relativism and subjectivism, and particularly as a result of Romanticism, specifically British Romanticism, although it was prominent on the continent also, there was an orientation toward feeling and emotion, And uh, this tended to erase the concept of uh, external authority. Authority was transferred to the inside, to man. Uh, Renaissance and later Enlightenment rationalism, of course, placed the authority in the mind of man, beginning largely in the philosophical school with Descartes. But in the Romantic period, with Coleridge, Wordsworth, and uh, Keats, Shelley, and then Byron, others, there was a a sort of turning to the idea of man and his emotions as the authority. And to a large degree, uh, rationalism does not survive in modern culture. There are elements of it, of course, in some of the universities. But on the whole, what is prominent today is the enthronement of the feelings and the emotions. Well, this, of course, has influenced the church. Uh, pietism, which began in Lutheranism and uh, 
as Rush was mentioning to me earlier in conversation today, had some roots in medievalism. Uh, pietism contributed to this idea also. But there was not only uh, a loss of uh, objective standards with respect to the Word of God, there was also a loss of objective standards with regard to the confessions of the Church. The Church very early hammered out confessions of faith. That's why we speak of ancient Catholic orthodoxy. The Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, Athanasian, of course, before that, the Apostles' Creed. But with the loss of biblical authority, there came also the loss of confessional authority. This has been supplanted by good feelings, religious feelings. In addition to that, and I'll mention only a couple of other factors before we get into the conversation itself, uh, this has led to um, a strong emphasis on relationalism. That is, the relation between individuals as being paramount to the faith. <clears throat> of course, the Word of God does govern our relations, and that's not the issue. But the point is, uh, one's relation to his fellow Christian and to the world began to supplant his relation to God. Uh, we see uh, this prominently in uh, the substitution of psychology for theology in the church. And uh, most of our listeners, no doubt, know of the prominent role that uh, psychology plays in the modern church. Almost all of it is anti-theological and subversive. There are some that, for example, take the Vantillian tack and uh, are not even truly psychologists. They counsel specifically from the Word of God. We're not talking about them. But on the whole, uh, psychology has to a great degree... Uh, subverted theology and replaced theology in the church. This has happened prominently in the seminaries in which courses in pure theology and systematic theology and biblical theology and the original languages uh, have been either replaced or reduced and have been uh, replaced by courses in uh, relationalism, church growth, uh, business and all that sort of thing. And then uh, one final factor that I'll mention, and there are many more we could discuss, and I'm sure we will, is the utter paganization of liberalism. Of course, originally, liberalism stated, well, we don't want these confessional standards. Essentially, the problem with uh, historic Orthodox Christianity is that it really does not conform to the mind and experience of man. Originally, they never felt that they were going to go off what we would call the deep end into utter apostasy. But the problem is when they lost the objective standard, first of all, of the Word of God, and second of all, of the uh, confessions of faith, the historic confessions of faith, and the Reformation confessions, for example, they were not aware that they didn't have a rudder by which to guide their ship. And therefore, the ship has been tossed on the sea of apostasy. And now liberalism involves... Uh, and includes the ordaining in the church, the ordaining of uh, homosexuals and women. Uh, fortunately, to a large degree, the Roman Catholic Church and con very conservative Protestantism has resisted that. But even in those areas, there have been inroads of feminism in the church. I think immediately of the book produced by the United Church of Christ, Pilgrim Press, in Cleveland a couple of years ago, Gay Theology Without Apology by David Comstock. Uh, in which he says plainly, I don't take my authority from the word of God or orthodoxy or tradition. I take my authority from myself and what feels good to me. 
and he stated plainly, we must get away from this idea that the Bible condones homosexuality in any sense. And he chides his homosexual theologian friends yes. for trying to find some place in the Word of God where homosexuality is condoned. He says, give it up. It's a lost cause. Let's just make a frontal assault on the authority of Scripture. That's where the battle must be joined. Well, here we see what Van Til would say is the epistemological self-consciousness of uh, apostasy. It's no longer hiding under the guise of uh, pretended neutral liberalism. So this paganization of liberalism, uh, a return to the pagan and to the depraved natural, is uh, one of those factors, I think, and trends in the church. Those are several, and I'm sure that we can discuss these and others at length. Mark, would you like to comment on that? Well, uh, we could uh, delve into what have they replaced this authority with. There is a number of factors they've replaced the Word of God with. Some of it is, is entirely subjective on the individual. In some instances, this, the subjectivity is only the established church, and so the church determines what is proper rather than the yes. individual. Yes. In others, it's a charismatic... Um, Figure, often the, the, the minister who must be a yes. dominant, um, to put it politely, perhaps tyrannical leader in the church. There, you have to have authority somewhere. And it's either going to be in, in individuals, it's going to be in a corporate entity, or, uh, in a personality. Yes. Or saints, perhaps, uh, in effect. They're, uh, favorite evangelist or their favorite, um, school. Yes. Uh, they look for authority somewhere, and you dare not challenge that authority. It's exactly right. The whole idea is that authority is now anthropocentric. It is not theocentric anymore. Um, and I think this is true, as Mark mentioned, of many charismatics, certainly not all. And I would mention there is a great revival of the Reformed faith among a number of charismatics. But on the other hand, there are some who, uh, of course, place or best authority in a charismatic figure, charismatic in that sense, not in the theological sense, but an outgoing individual. But then, uh, even in churches that are not that way, there is a feeling orientation that governs. Um, another one that we neglected to mention is... Um, what we may call majoritarianism. Whatever the majority of the church thinks is right. I was telling Rush earlier of a church in the area in which I pastor that grades the pastor's sermons. They actually hand out little report sheets or report cards. And if the pastor's delivery is not up to par, of course par is what they determine that it shall be, or if it is too intellectual or not intellectual enough, or if he preaches too long or not long enough, then uh, he's subject to some criticism. And thus we have uh, almost a revival of the Tower of Babel, that man will decide what will occur in the church. And of course, this filters out into the wider society. Rush? Or mm -hmm. Douglas, would you like this? It almost sounds like the standards of the entertainment industry being, <laughs> being applied to, yes. to the church. Uh, the uh, emotionalism is alive and well in the churches we all know. Many of the churches uh, in this area, they have virtually crowded out any biblical 
uh, teaching with uh, essentially entertainment. Uh, guitar playing and uh, you know various musical events and uh, there's very little if any time left for any uh, for the Bible and uh, but people uh, many people that's what they want it seems to me that in many cases the most popular churches are those who have the greatest level of entertainment that's right well one of the things that uh, I think must be pointed out again and again is what Douglas referred to, the entertainment industry and its impact on the church. We were discussing, I believe yesterday, Andrew, the fact that uh, with the rise of Arminianism, the church stressed man, man's feeling, man's conversion over the objective faith over God and what God requires. And the architecture of the church changed. Now, one of the few things uh, that should be remembered about church architecture, which marked it from the beginning, the very first church, the earliest churches built by Christians in times of persecution, in times of trouble, were stone churches and they were basilicas and that's why in older terminology the uh, sanctuary is referred to as the basilica or part of it at any rate is the basilica. Uh, the word comes from basil which means king. The church was the king's throne room and court. And therefore, when you came into the building, which had to be a good one, because when the Christians were poor and persecuted, they were building these stone churches, because it was the king's throne room, from whence his law word was proclaimed. That's why in those days you stood when scripture was read. You might sit during the rest of the service, but you stood for the scripture, because it was the king's word, Old and New Testaments alike. But what happened was that the church in the last century, with a rise in this country at any rate, the change took place as Arminian revivalism arose. And the church then began to be designed after the pattern of a theater, and you had your pulpit in the front and seats all around on every side uh, with the whole purpose being to be entertained from the pulpit. The pastor became an entertainer. In the last century, after the revivals uh, began, real estate promoters started to build churches when they began a development. For example, when Brooklyn was first built, they built a church, a big one, 
and looked around for a good pulpiteer, and they brought in Henry Ward Beecher. And Beecher, depending on where he was, was a Calvinist, an Arminian, and a Modernist. So he packed them in, and that was a good way of selling houses in the real estate development, because the church had gone from being a sanctuary and a throne room to being an auditorium where a pastor entertained the people. That was a very, very dramatic change. It did, as you indicate, lead to a man-centered instead of a God-centered church, and a man-centered is against a God-centered worship. Now, creeds were once an important part of worship. They still survive uh, in that many churches repeat the Apostles' Creed and use the Nicene Creed in communion services. But, by and large, it's a relic. It's not the focus. Not even many Calvinists remember that the whole of Calvin's institutes from beginning to end is a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Because the whole point of teaching and preaching was that people know what they were supposed to believe. But not many churchmen today know their creeds or are familiar with a confession of faith of their particular church. Then there's another factor to which uh, you, Andrew, and Mark, you both, I believe, refer to. The peace at any price mentality, the hatred of conflict, the dislike of stress, as though the elimination of conflict and stress is somehow Christian virtue. But you live in a world that is fallen, and we're told that from the very beginning there's a battle between those who are the Lord's and those who are against him. Yes. You cannot escape conflict in this world. And because there is sin in the world, there will be conflict. You have such a mentality today that it leads a great many employers to the position where they are afraid to fire anybody, no matter how incompetent he is. And the result is that uh, employees feel, as numerous lawsuits have indicated, they have a proprietary right to their job, as though it's their property, and you can't touch them. Now, 20 years or more ago, Joanna, our daughter, was Mark's sister, was working for the phone company, which, when she started working, was the finest place for girls to work, the cleanest environment, but it changed. For example, because of the requirement that they hire people with disabilities, they had to take for a woman who 
a young woman who was obese, really obese, sloppy obese, and did nothing to mend that condition. She ate, she nibbled at uh, things constantly, and so on. And she was full of self-pity. She was nasty to everyone there. She would stay home because she felt sorry for herself two, three days, and the other girls, of course, were happy when she did. And she would get sick leave of an unlimited sort of, uh, nature to do that. The management found it impossible to cope with her, but they never dared to fire her or to rebuke her for staying out too much, which, of course, only pleased them. Now, we have things comparable in the church and in Christian organizations. No matter how bad they are, you are to fire no one. Whether it's from the church staff, a foundation staff, or a Christian school staff, if you do, there's serious trouble. Nor dare you discipline them and say you have been guilty of adultery, you have admitted it, and therefore we are excommunicating you because you refuse to repent. That's grounds for suing a church and winning in some instances. Yes. So the idea is that Christians are to be a doormat. There is a hatred of conflict, a hatred of stress. But a fallen world is a conflict world and a world full of stress. Yes. You have battles to fight everywhere in every sphere. But we have reached the point where that is no longer valid. We have, as you indicated, majoritarianism. Not only so, but we have, together with it, a feeling that the majority is right, but you dare not, if it is anything but a Christian minority, do anything to offend the feelings of the minority. So you have minority groups in the church and out of the church, acting as though all right is theirs because they are a minority. And the result is a fearful evil in that people have become afraid to make a stand. Yes. Well, the, the hardest way to make a stand is on Scripture. Yes. There are conflicts all the time in, in churches, but they're rarely over scriptural matters. They're the same things that would occur in any kind of a social club when there's a certain hierarchy and certain people have been in the church a lot longer than the pastor and they're not going to, they're not going to take this and uh, they don't like the pastor for one reason or another or they have a problem. So there are conflicts all the time. But if you dare bring up anything scriptural, then you're considered to be a troublemaker because people don't feel comfortable discussing scripture and they don't really want to discuss scripture because their attitude is, well, maybe we have to believe that, maybe don't. But, but yes. since it's subjective, yes, that's right. That's your interpretation mm -hmm. of scripture. How many times have you heard that? That's your interpretation yes. of scripture. That's right. Yes, it's remarkable that when one wants to introduce scripture into a discussion, oftentimes that indicates the end of the discussion. 
for many people. Uh, and this brings up another element that I wanted to discuss, and that is the feminization of the church. Some of the listeners may have heard or heard of or read uh, Ann Douglas's book, The Feminization mm-hmm. of American Culture, written a few years ago. She demonstrates that um, feminization of uh, the uh, American society occurred to a large degree as a result of the destruction of Orthodox Calvinism in New England early last century. And I brought that up uh, as a result of what uh, Mark said, because oftentimes the people who do the very things that Mark was talking about uh, base their entire argument and disagreement on their feelings or their emotions or that sort of thing. And there's a deep resistance to bringing objective standards. Well, uh, sentimentalism and emotion are largely characteristics of women. This is not in any way to degrade women. But it is for this reason that God uh, asserted plainly in his word that men are to be the uh, uh, clerical, uh, pastoral leaders in the church. But because the church has become largely feminized, the introduction of scripture or even confessional standards into the church is often met with great hostility, great hostility, by those for whom the uh, guiding principle is their emotion or their sentiment or how they feel about a matter. Well, uh, Mary Douglas's book on the feminization of American culture, of course, is a landmark work. And it should be back in print. It's so important. It is interesting that she pointed out that as Calvinism and Calvinistic theology left the church, the church became feminized. And feminism today is very powerful in the church. We recently reprinted uh, the little uh, book edited by Elizabeth Fellerson on uh, marriage. And it is interesting that when it was first published in the 70s, the hostile reactions by women who claimed to be good Bible believers or good Calvinists or good, you name the church, people from uh, almost any group in uh, Christendom who objected to the book violently because they saw it as implicitly anti-feminist or anti-woman because it stressed certain things in Scripture. And they were insistent that those things were misunderstood. Their answer, if you said, why then for 20 centuries has it been misunderstood, (laughs) was that our culture was hostile to women, which is not true, because even in the Middle Ages you find in periods of theological decline, when women actually took to preaching, and when women in one way or another assumed authorities that only belonged to a priest, so that feminism is not new to our culture, and we forget how again and again 
as a culture has declined and as men have abdicated their duties, women have taken over. One of the things, for example, that very few people realize is there were a great many women warriors in the crusade fighting on the Christian side. And uh, they usually were uh, titled people of the nobility. And uh, they were very, very vicious fighters. They liked to behead the people they conquered. They liked trophies to uh, uh, show and to parade with. So the feminist impulse is nothing new. It has arisen more than once. So it has not been a, a male domination that has prevented the true meaning of scripture from coming to light. It's simply been that the exegesis has always been the same, yes. wherever it hasn't been eisegesis or false interpretation. I think this is another example, too, of the way in which the pagan culture surrounding the church shapes the views of the church and her theology rather than vice versa. I'm always suspicious when theologians are wanting to alter their views whenever it just so happens that the modern culture tends to embrace those views. Yes. Uh, there was a group of noted evangelicals that got together a few years ago saying, well, we need to rethink this issue of uh, the place and role of women in the church and by which they were wanting to justify women in the ministry. Well, uh, one is likely to be very suspicious of that act and to question its sincerity precisely because it seems to be a capitulation to a caving in to the pressures of a modern decadent and apostate culture. And this is true in the case of sex and sexuality. Uh, it's true in the case of what we mentioned earlier with respect to entertainment. Uh, the church growth movement that's prominent at a noted uh, Southern California seminary and elsewhere. Uh, capitulation to the baby boomers and reorienting the church that way. Well, one of the things that has happened that is basic to the decline is that theology and the Bible are no longer as important in the church as they once were. They have given away, given way to humanistic emphases. And another thing I'd like to comment upon is that the church is supposed to replace the family now. In other words, the minister and the church is spoke, are supposed to, uh, visit endlessly, counsel endlessly, take care of all the things that a family once did for its members. Yes. And so there is little time for the uh, pastor to study and to grow in his knowledge of the faith, which is one reason why in the present era 
especially since World War II, people change churches so often, that is, the clergy. Yes. I know that in the 50s, there was one church in one of the earliest colonies established that had uh, quite a shocking experience. Their pastor left them. And from the mid-1700s or early 1700s until the 1950s, they had a total of three pastors. Each was called when he left Princeton Seminary. Each of them lived to be, I believe, 90-something and preached to the last. So a church with a long history was in its fourth pastor and they had his place in the cemetery already laid out for him and he left them and they were horrified. Well, that was an old-fashioned standard. The man went there. The laity, if there were any need, took care of it. He concentrated on leading them into the fullest kind of knowledge of the faith. And that was the way the clergy used to be regarded. Now they've been absorbed into uh, the psychology end of it. Yes, it's uh, it's very sad, and uh, it is no wonder that uh, members leave churches so readily and frequently, because ministers do also. This is another example of the consumerist, narcissistic mentality mm-hmm. that I will go to a church that will provide me with the most services. Yes. We'll have unusual Sunday school programs and Awana programs and In other words, I go to a church to meet my, and here's the chic word, felt needs, to meet Mm -hmm. my felt needs. Uh, Many members don't attend churches because the word of God is truly preached, the sacraments duly administered, uh, but merely because it it appeals to them. It's almost as though they're, some people call it an ecclesiastical smorgasbord. I'll stay here as long as I can get some food uh, to my liking and then I will go somewhere else. The, um, you can't have a, a systematic approach to the faith unless you have a systematic theology. Since most modern churches have denied systematic th- theology because they've denied most of Scripture, they're left with um, basically the individual and the needs of the individual. If you dispensationalism has denied most of Scripture, they say God has changed His mind over the course of history, and therefore it's all right if we're, our approach to Scripture changes throughout the course of history. That's right. I think some of these conflicts uh, that I've seen in my lifetime that have arisen in the church uh, have really been instigated from outside the church. Um, the humanists have attacked the church in a rather cowardly fashion, not a frontal assault, but they've used surrogates. They've used the uh, legislative branch of government 
They've used the legal profession. They've used the courts to create conflict indirectly within the church, between people in the church. And they have really uh, capitalized on that to do as much mischief as possible, such as engendering this idea of uh, rights. Yes. Rather than responsibilities or duties. Yes. Well, when I was in seminary, one of the things uh, I was confronted with was the hostility to systematic theology. And there actually were theologians, so-called, who were writing against systematic theology. And the gist of what they were saying is, how can we know what God is when he doesn't know what he is? In other words, God is a developing force in the universe. Therefore, since he is developing, he's not a finished product. Therefore, how can you have systematics? In other words, how can you define him when he has not yet found himself? Yes. And they even had their own school. It's called process philosophy and process theology, which is still uh, prominent and very influential. You know, that reminds me, the oddity here and the irony and the tragedy indeed is that the evangelical church seems always to be playing catch-up. Yes. It seems as though when false ideas have run their course in the wider society and in liberalism, evangelicals, specifically evangelical theologians, tend to pick them up and tout them as some new wonderful thing. Rather than boldly and forthrightly standing for the truth against all of these uh, false philosophies. And uh, the evangelical church has become impoverished because of that. And this has happened on a number of fronts. During the break, uh, Mark was mentioning uh, the example of evolution and the advent of atheistic evolution. And although this isn't really specifically the topic of the program, evolution is not strictly a science, it's a philosophy. It's a competing revelatory word, uh, competing with uh, Holy Scripture. It will lose, of course, but it is a satanic uh, philosophy competing with the Word of God. And it seems the evangelical church tends to pick up these ideas after they tend to be exhausted in uh, the wider culture. Well, we've been talking about a lot of negative trends. I thought maybe it would be wise to conclude the program with some positive uh, trends. One that I think of immediately is the resurgence of historic Calvinism. Uh, This has come about largely through Rush, your writings, as well as publications from Banner of Truth, for example, and others in Britain. Though we don't always agree with everything that's published, we're grateful for all of the... uh, republications and reprintings of some of the great Calvinistic and Puritan works. And Van Til's works. And Van Til's, absolutely. Um, People have, sincere people that were trained in the Armenian faith have recognized its futility and eventually its impotence, not only in evangelism, although that's a prominent feature, but also in the church, family, and in wider society. And I think, if anything, we need to continue to encourage that uh, resurgence of uh, sound Calvinistic orthodoxy because 
And while I do not wish to reflect unfavorably on other genuine expressions of the faith, I must admit that it is Calvinism, historic Calvinism, and Calvinism alone that uh, speaks to all of life. Uh, Benjamin Warfield made this point very well in uh, his work, uh, Augustine and uh, Calvin, Calvin and Augustine, a number of years ago, published by Presbyterian Reformed, that even Lutheranism does not speak to all of life. Calvinism does, and I think it's for that reason that we should encourage its resurgence. Uh, we're joined now by John Upton, who's been busy preparing a banquet. Uh, John, we're discussing trends in the church today. What would you say you see from your vantage point? And you've seen a great deal. Um, well, I've seen the, the people relying on the institution. I don't know if you've gotten into this or not. No. The institution is something that I think that the overwhelming majority of people are leaning on, much like the uh, Roman church of old. And the pastors have become the priests, and the indulgences uh, are the feel-good things that the that the uh, pastors tell you in the church. So uh, I think the institute, as far as the institution is concerned, people are sold on the institution. But I haven't really heard. Maybe Rush, you could could give a good definition of what the institution is versus the invisible church versus the church that we, as we know it. Yes, men tend to want idolatry, which in part is something visible to worship and depend on. Whereas, of course, our faith stresses the invisible God. The Romans regarded the Jews as atheists because when they first invaded our, it was Antiochus Epiphanes who first did it and then the Romans picked up the idea. They invaded the Holy of Holies and they found nothing there in the way of an idol or an image. These people had to be atheists because People wanted something they could handle and touch and see in order to worship and to rely on. And the church replaces the faith for many, many people. And it leads to an idolatry. And without fully realizing it, the church authorities can encourage it. Sometimes they do so deliberately. When they fail to stress the faith rather than the institution, the churches make themselves the authority. They hold more and more meetings, councils, presbyteries, conferences to govern every jot and tittle of human life. And it's interesting that when they reject God's law, they set up their own law yes. and attempt to govern everything. So people who believe themselves to be devout Christians 
are ready to worship the institution when the chips are down more than anything else. And I might add that when the faith becomes ecclesiocentric or church-centered, uh, it tends to become impotent. It tends not to uh, apply itself beyond the confines of the church and assumes that if it can just reform the church, and the church does need reform, but if it can just reform the church that everything else will go well. But of course that isn't true at all. And then there is a sort of ecclesiastical monasticism that develops. The church is constantly inward-looking rather than outward-looking. And she doesn't take her responsibility of dominion too seriously. And of course that happened in late medieval Romanism, but we certainly can't absolve the uh, modern Protestants of that too. Many of them have suffered from that same problem. One reason the church is so infinite is because the church sees itself as the end rather than a means to an end. Very good. Uh, the church sees itself as the end of the faith, but the church is to make the church the end of the faith is to commit idolatry. Uh, God is the end of the faith, and uh, our responsibilities under Him and the Word of God. And I think that's one main reason, among a numbers, uh, a number of reasons, that uh, the church is uh, is so impotent today. And as a pastor, give me um, a sense of the the human dynamics of how a good group of believers who started a church can turn a church into a living nightmare. From a pastor's standpoint, how do they seek to 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 take it over? Well, I think one of the main ways in which that is done is uh, when they follow human tradition rather than the Word of God, and therefore elevate that human tradition. Well, we've always done it that way here, or this way here. And when the pastor or our elders or deacons wish to introduce uh, godly, sensible changes, uh, they claim, as I think maybe Mark was mentioning earlier, that, well, we've been at the church a long, long time, and therefore we've already always done this, and we need to keep doing it. Uh, it's interesting. I think Rush may have brought this up in uh, the recently released uh, Systematic Theology. I can't remember. He mentioned it somewhere. It's remarkable. Ordinarily, the antiseptic church, the so-called perfect church, is the most impotent church. The church that has problems, ordinarily, is the church that is doing something. You look at that's very prominent in the book of Acts. Uh, you don't find some neoplatonic ideal church in the book of Acts. It was a church that had some problems. Well, it had problems because it was accomplishing something. And uh, the church that doesn't want to accomplish anything may become, in its own eyes, the perfect church, the antiseptic church, the church in which there are no problems. But it will also be the church in which there's no action and no dominion. But I think that's one way that the members uh, accomplish that in the church. And many of them don't recognize personal obligation. It is, as you indicated earlier, John, uh, they look to the church as an institution. They look at the church and say, what can the church do for me, rather than saying, what can I do for the Lord through the church? I think those are some prominent uh, problems. What were some of the characteristics of what was referred to as the Church of Satan um, by by Paul? Didn't he refer to one of the churches as uh, a synagogue of Satan? No, that was in Revelation. Our Lord and the letters to the seven churches has such a reference. And of course, you'd have to say that such a church follows the temptation of Genesis 3, 5. You shall be as God, determining for yourself what is good and evil. 
That's the force of the word knowing good and evil, determining for yourself, establishing it. Well, an antinomian church that says God's law isn't enough will create our own rules. It is a church of Satan. That's right. Because it has forsaken the objective word of God for its own word. And it will set up rules and regulations. And if you violate them, they come down on you uh, hard. I was mentioning, uh, I believe to you, Andrew, earlier today, I knew uh, a minister a good many years ago who wanted nothing to do with anyone who was divorced. And in the particular instance, it was a man who had left his wife, gotten a divorce, and uh, lived with two women and then married a third. And the woman was told by her lawyer, in this state he can come and take the property and it's your money that went into it if you don't get a divorce. And she was refused a place in the church, asked to leave, because supposedly God hates divorce. And uh, the fact that she was the innocent party meant nothing and when she called attention to it and it was verifiable he'd been involved in uh, um, sex club activities that sort of thing free for alls and the minister actually dared to say I don't know what drove him to it maybe you kept your legs crossed all the time to the wife to the wife Mm. I'm sure he's roasting in hell, although he claimed to be an orthodox man, because that was the temper of that man. This other pastor told me he would never marry anyone divorced, no matter how innocent, because he hated divorce. And I said, you're trying to be holier than God. Yes, that's right. He never spoke to me after that, for which I was very grateful. (laughs) John, you know, another matter, too. Many churches are nothing more than social clubs. They don't recognize their high calling. The true church is really an extension of the heavenly throne room. Uh, the Bible says where even two or three are gathered together, that God is in the that the, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst, and of course He is the reigning King. If the church, when she comes together to worship, recognizes her high calling as the people of God, and not that merely she is on a par with the uh, Rotary Club or the Moose or the Elks or the Hoot Owls or whatever the case may be, that she is a supernatural organization then I think she'll recognize the high calling that she has. The name for the church in this world, as against the church in heaven, which is the church triumphant, has through the centuries been the church militant. That's right. A church busy fighting against the enemy outside and inside. And if you look at God's armies in the Bible, there is always a house cleaning and the military body, supremely in the case of Gideon, who wound up with only a handful of the army he marched with, or 
with uh, the apostles who had to clean house periodically. Today that would lead to a hue and cry and all kinds of letters. Paul, you must be a terrible man. You got rid of so-and-so. You are a bad Christian or no Christian at all. No idea that in a sin-filled world there are divisions. They're necessary. The true church is always reforming itself because it has to grow. Reforming itself in terms of the Word of God, yes. Where are Reconstructionist pastors coming from today? Are there any seminaries? that None. None. If the Lord would ever so provide, we try to start one, but there are none, and right now in a major denomination, there is a form that has gone out to every pastor, the gist of which is, well, we need to exercise a great deal of tolerance with regard to our confession of faith. We need to allow for differing interpretations with regard to the Bible. We need to allow for this and that. But on one thing, no toleration. Reconstructionists. In fact, uh, most of the seminaries are deeply resistant to Reconstruction and theonomy. In fact, even Reformed seminaries are resistant to it. Why do they consider it a threat? Oh yes, we are a threat to them. Why? Because so many people out there are beginning to say, here at last is a Christianity that applies the faith across the board. That's right. And they don't like that. They want to sit in their little corner in the church, let the world go whatever way it wants to, because as long as they keep themselves pure in that little corner, they're going to go to heaven. Reconstruction requires responsibility, and many of them do not want the added responsibility. I think that they're engaged in a lot of uh, just naval contemplation. They just want to have uh, a lot of young ministers come, teach them a little about theology and a smidgen of the biblical languages, uh, a little about church growth and all that sort of thing, and keep the denomination rolling smoothly. Don, perhaps you can uh, tell us what happened when you started rescuing orphans uh, or unsalvageable children in Romania and bringing them here for medical treatment, what was the reaction of the churches to you? Well, the churches, um, first of all, the church people are great at patting you on the back and saying, you're such a wonderful man and we're just going to hold you up in prayer. And... You're just an inspiration to us. And to me, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather have root canal than hear any more of that kind of crap because it's all it is. It's just a bunch of crap. None of the churches in my area um, even invited me to speak. Um, Barbara Walters has more respect for me than my local pastor. And I think it's because they saw that um, I was some kind of a, of a threat to them. I wasn't under the control of a board of directors or uh, some local um, group of people. Um, this was uh, always a Chalcedon project so that you and I, Rush and Mark and, 
and the rest of the um, trustees were in total contact. But we didn't need to sit down and have meetings to, uh, you know, to talk about meaningless things. So I think that was one of the the uh, problems that we ran across. Another big problem was that I was getting into these so-called Christian um, agencies. Uh, I was getting into their turf because I was um, challenging their, their conventions. These are people that usually, uh, that may have started out with good intentions of helping children, but they're like workers on an assembly line. They, 20 years ago, they used to know how to tighten a lug nut, but now they've forgotten how to do that. Yet they're telling the people that tighten the lug nuts how to tighten them. They've become worthless bureaucrats. How many children did those agencies, which were critical of you, I know, yeah. get out of Romania? In two years, they got out at less than 20. Mm -hmm. In um, six months, we got out 35. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember that these agencies have yearly budgets of, of, of millions of dollars. Yes. And they have staffs. Uh, they have hundreds of people on their staff. And what they were doing, the way they were doing business is typical of a church environment. They were going in to, to receive the, um, uh, the blessings of everybody else. They didn't say that God's tell, told me to do this and the Ten Commandments are my guide and I'm not going to break the law to do this. They went into Romania and they sought to, to make friends out of these people and to, to work with them and cooperate with them. And that's what made them so worthless. I recall one group called, and I told them to talk to you. They were highly critical. They had been working for years and had not yet brought one child out. And uh, somehow you were an offense. Well, we have just about three minutes. Is there something more you want to say, John? I, I, I would just like to, to, to find out what are the characteristics of the real church? Um, what are some things that, that people out there can look for? Calvin put it very clearly. And in the June Chalcedon report, I gave an account of what Calvin believed. The true church has the faithful and true preaching of the word, and it has deacons with a ministry to human need in every sphere. These, Calvin said, are the two great marks of a true church. And this was most true in Calvin's case. And in the case of his most prominent imitator, a Catholic bishop, St. Charles of Borromeo. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.